Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. In this episode, we are bringing you a conversation on the recent elections in Israel and the upcoming elections for Palestinians. Hosted by FMAP non-resident fellow Peter Beinart and guests Dr. Hanana Shrawi, Orly Noy, and Diana Butu. For context, two weeks ago, Israelis went to the polls for the fourth time in two years to elect a new government. In parallel, Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and East Jerusalem are now, for the first time in nearly 15 years, preparing for presidential and legislative elections, scheduled for May and June. In the following conversation, our guests talk about what the prospects are for these elections to bring about real positive change for either people, or whether these elections are just a distraction that enable the continuation of the current status quo, which includes the increasingly liberal nature of Israeli politics and society, and the continued authoritarian and unaccountable nature of Palestinian leadership. Without further ado, I'll leave it to Peter to formally introduce our guests and get the conversation started. We are delighted to be joined by a great panel of guests. I have to say, even if just one of the three uh, of the people I'm about to introduce were uh, were my guest for the next hour and a half, I would be thrilled to have all three of them together. is 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 just really remarkable. I uh, I, I can't think of a of a of a more exciting lineup to discuss these issues. Um, uh, so let me introduce our three uh, panelists in alphabetical order, and their full bios are on our website. Uh, Dr. Hanan Ashrawi is a distinguished Palestinian leader, legislator, activist, and scholar who served as a member of the Leadership Committee and as an official spokesman of the Palestinian delegation to the Middle East peace process, beginning with the Madrid Peace Conference of 1991. Making history as the first woman to hold a seat on, in the highest executive body in Palestine, she was elected as member of the Executive Committee of the Palestine Liberation Organization, in 2009 and most recently in 2018. She resigned from that position in December, 2020. Diana Butu is a Canadian Palestinian human rights attorney. In 2000, Ms. Butu moved to the occupied West Bank where she served as a legal advisor to the Palestinian negotiating team and later to the Palestinian president. She resigned from her post in 2005, but remains a frequent contributor on Middle East politics and human rights. Orly Noy is a journalist, translator of Farsi literature into Hebrew, and political and Mizrahi activist. She is an editor at Local Call, member of B'Tselem's executive board, and an activist with the Balad political party. Now let's um, let's jump in. Um, Orly, I'd love to start with you. Uh, this is the most re- this most recent election was the fourth in two years. Why are Israelis spinning in these endless rounds of elections? And what are these elections really about? And was this fourth one really any different from the previous three? Thank you. Hi, Peter. Thank you. And uh, thank you so much for having me on this wonderful panel. Uh, That's a terrific uh, question. Uh, Sometimes we get a feeling that we've been trapped in an endless uh, episode of Seinfeld, which is basically politics about nothing. Uh, I mean, if uh, we used to have at least a pretension of having elections about ideology, now uh, it is about one question and one question only. And this is Netanyahu, yes or no. After uh, he uh, has uh, been charged with criminal offenses, this became the defined question uh, of the Israeli politics. So uh, uh, it's no longer about uh, economy, not foreign policy, not the occupation, of course, not the very worrying uh, deterioration uh, in the social uh, services in Israel, education, the relations between state and uh, religion, none of these. Uh, So basically, we've had 
four extremely expensive, uh, expensive referendums about uh, uh, whether or not Netanyahu should uh, stay uh, in power. This created a, a very severe anomaly of the uh, political system in Israel in which people who basically share uh, an identical worldview, and sometimes they actually come from the same party. Yes, if we uh, look at uh, Gidon Sar, who left the Netanyahu's party, Likud, to head a different party who is now opposing Netanyahu. So people with the same worldview find themselves in uh, two rival uh, camps. It is an uh, anomaly in which people who define themselves not only as central of the political uh, map, but as actually as left-wingers, uh, vote for a hawkish right-winger like Gidon Sar just to be able uh, uh, to read of uh, Netanyahu. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, from the other side, this anomaly created a situation in, win in which uh, Netanyahu needs the support of the Islamic party to stay in power. This is the same Islamic party that he uh, repeatedly referred to as uh, terrorists or supporting terrorists or whatever. Now he's been wooing them uh, in every which way. Uh, but but the problem is, and uh, it, it's ironic to some extent, that after Netanyahu not only legitimized the Kahanists, which uh, today were sworn as uh, uh, Knesset members, uh, but he actually made alliances uh, with them and made he did basically everything within his power to make sure that they do enter the Knesset, only to find out that they are maybe the true last ideological political players and their uh, race theory actually does not allow them to enter a government that is being supported uh, by an Arab party, the Islamic party uh, in, uh, in, in the current uh, situation. And Betalel Smutwich, uh, the head of the Zionist, uh, uh, the religious uh, Zionist party in which the Kahanists uh, sit, uh, said it, uh, he couldn't have been more explicit uh, about that. But the same, but this uh, racist sentiment um, is not restricted only to the Netanyahu, uh, Netanyahu's camp. Uh, on the other camp, which calls this itself the, the change camp or the healing camp or whatever, uh, the same racist sentiment uh, makes uh, things very complicated because Bennett too cannot, uh, or it's very difficult for him to sit in a government that be, is being supported by the joint list, uh, for example. And of course, we are not talking about the joint list actually joining as members uh, to, to any government, but just to support it from... Uh, outside, from outside the government. But even this is too much for people like uh, Bennett. Uh, and, and of course, it should be mentioned that it's not uh, that uh, simple for the joint list to support such a government as well. It, more, moreover, in the last, in the previous elections, the joint list made one of the most difficult choices it had to make since its creation. 
which was recommending uh, Benny Gantz as the preferred candidate uh, to uh, form the, the government. Now we are talking about, it's the same Benny Gantz that in his election campaign bragged about the number of dead Palestinians uh, in Gaza during the war in Gaza uh, in 2014. So you can imagine how unbearably difficult that was for members of the joint list and for all four parties did that, even Tajamo, Balad. Um, uh, and that was an unprecedented uh, uh, act, which was received by Benny Gantz ignoring that recommendation and preferring to break every promise he made to his voters, which was basically one promise just to uh, replace Netanyahu. And he went and sat with Netanyahu in the same uh, uh, government. Um, so the, the situation is not dramatically different uh, this time, and maybe we can elaborate more. I don't want to take too much time at this point. Uh, there have been some small changes that might enable uh, uh, some way out of um, uh, this uh, mess, but the fundamental uh, elements that entangle the Israeli politics uh, in in the uh, this endless uh, in this dead end uh, road are very much still there. Yeah, Arlie, I'm, I'm so glad you you focused on that moment with Ayman Oda and 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 Benny Gantz because I think that so much of the media discussion in the United States does not actually really portray the way the Israeli political system actually works. And so there's this constant conversation about where is the Israeli left without understanding that that. 20% of the Israeli of Israel citizens are in many ways structurally excluded from Israeli politics. So, you know, it's as if you're asking the Democratic Party almost to win an election without black votes or imagine that Benny, well, you know, what Benny Gantz did is almost the equivalent of Joe Biden saying, I'd rather go, you know, join a government with Donald Trump than essentially accept, you know, the votes of black voters to be elected. I mean, it just, it, 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 it the, the, the structural, the way the system works, I think is not really as well understood in the US as it, as it should be. Um, but Diane, I wanted to go to you. So it seems to me if, if Israel has arguably been having too many elections, um, it seems to the Palestinians have perhaps been having too few over the, the in, in recent decades. Um, this will be the, uh, the first election in, in more than 20 years. And you have written in the New York Times that the, 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 um, the democratic legitimacy um, of the Palestinian leadership expired long ago. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why that why there haven't been elections why that democratic legitimacy has expired and then why are we having elections now and what's at stake well um Peter, that's a great question i want to begin uh first before i begin by thanking everybody who is on this webinar i also especially want to thank my co-panelists orly and dr hanan and uh, everybody at the foundation for middle east peace for putting this together especially those who who remain nameless and faceless um often um, to answer your question, sorry, thank you. So to answer your question, I, um, the reason that I think that their democratic legitimacy ended a long time ago is because of the structural problems that existed with Oslo. You'll recall that Oslo itself was only meant to be a uh, last for a period of five years, ending in May 1999, with at that point the creation of an independent Palestine independent Palestinian state. And, and yet that didn't happen for all of the reasons that we all know, namely because 
there was no political will on the part of the Israeli government to end its military occupation and no um, international will on the part of everybody else to force Israel to end its military occupation. And so what was supposed to be simply a four year period, which we can handle because that was the term of the Palestinian Legislative Council, has now turned into, into uh, um, from 1996 to 2006 and then from 2006 onwards. And so the main problem has been that throughout this entire period of time, there hasn't been a renunciation of the Oslo agreements and of what Oslo actually means. And instead we've been trapped in this continual paradigm of what Oslo is and what Oslo isn't. Add to that the fact that the international community um, continues to meddle in the negative way when it comes to, to Palestine. They themselves have not been pushing for elections because they didn't like the outcome of the last elections when we saw that um, Hamas got a large percentage of the, vote, of the vote when it came to the number of seats. They didn't get the largest overall, but in terms of the number of seats. And so in effect, what we've seen is that there's been this push on the, on the there's a bit of pull on the one hand by the international community to keep business as usual, to wanting to keep business as usual, to even going as, so far as to undermine those institutions that had been created um, during the, the first few years of Oslo, to keep that in place because they didn't want to face the reality that Palestinians had chosen a different leadership. Add to that the fact that there has been a split between, um, between this, the Hamas and between Fatah, and there you have a perfect recipe where neither, uh, neither of those two parties really want to be pushing for change because they're content with, in many ways, content with the status quo, even though the status quo is not tenable and not good for, for either side. Um, and so there you have this recipe. Add to that the fact that the Israelis have also not wanted to see change. They've been content with, with, the, with the way that the situation has played out. All to say that we, the people, have not been content with this. And if you look at um, opinion polls, it's been poll after poll that has shown that the, the number one issue that people are pointing to and that they would like to see a resolution to is the split between Hamas and Fatah. We see that people are speaking very highly of, of the lack of security that they face, both physical security and economic security. And add to that, obviously, the occupation. So it's been all of these things that, that um, the major players have benefited, but people on the ground have not. Why it is that these elections are taking place now is, I think, a combination of factors. I think, on the one hand, um, there, is, there are a number of people who, who have been very vocal about um, making sure that they want to see elections take place and, and have been saying this for quite some time. It's, uh, and you know, movements can't stay immune to, to what their supporters um, want. The second reason I think is that we've seen a change within uh, this, the US administration from that of, of trying to cling on for dear life under the Trump administration to a different administration under Biden. And then I think third and, and also very important is that you know, movements cannot grow without having some type of either democracy or doing something. That's not the way that we've seen that, that political movements grow. They shrink if they don't do anything. They shrink if there aren't elections. And so I think that there is also a recognition that if we want to have a future, that there needs to be a future that is a democratic one. All of the indicators so far, we've been going down a path that has been highly undemocratic. And while I have my reservations when it comes 
to these, uh, these particular elections, I am somebody who is very much in favor of holding elections because I do believe that the time is now for us to at least begin the process of renewal and begin the process of, of reclaiming uh, our movement and reclaiming what it is that we want. I don't say that this is what these elections are about, but I do think that it's very important for us to begin to move along that path and, and to give people uh, the ability um, to, to actually change and shape their future. Great. Um, Dr. Ashwawe, I wanted to ask you um, a little bit about, about what it's actually like to try to run in and hold elections under occupation. I think, again, sometimes in the US media, I think there's this, people imagine that this is just an election. This is an election in a sovereign country, like it would be in the United States or, yeah. or Finland. Yeah. Um, but um, I know you know a lot about the, 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 the challenges uh, of, of actually running and trying to hold an election when uh, another power is, uh, is in control of the, uh, ult is ultimately in control of the territory. And I wonder if you can just talk about what that reality is like. Yeah, well, this whole situation, uh, first of all, thank you, Peter, and thank you, everybody. It's wonderful to be with you. Uh, the situation is really fraught with, with ironies and with contradictions, and it is almost absurd, you know, a surrealistic situation in which a people under occupation who have no rights whatsoever, no freedoms whatsoever, are supposed to have free and fair elections, quote unquote, when there is no freedom and no justice in their daily lives. Okay, so we, th there's a, a series of uh, adverse uh, conditions uh, in context, particularly the uh, intrusion of the occupation, the control of Israel over every aspect of our lives. We were just talking about how they've arrested a few people, they've disbanded, they've disrupted a meeting in Jerusalem of people who were talking about elections, doing nothing more insidious than discussing whether they want to run or not. And some of them are candidates. Israel has been summoning people and threatening them uh, should they run. And of course, you have the whole regime of control in terms of checkpoints, in terms of uh, arrests, as I said, intimidation uh, and so on. So. Uh, just a reminder to the rest of the world that this is not a normal situation, that the to the Palestinians having elections is a real battle. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but when I first ran uh, for the uh, Jerusalem district, I was stopped at a checkpoint. The army pulled out my uh, assistance and my aid, and, and uh, because they didn't want to give them the posters and leaflets and so on, they started beating them up. I tried to rescue them. I was beaten up and then I was detained for a whole day. And then they took away all my leaflets and posters and material. And, and to me, this is one way in which we fight in order to be able to have elections. People don't understand that. Uh, this is one thing. But there are other things also. We are having elections now under an agreement that is, to put it mildly, very unfair, and that was signed with, with serious flaws. Uh, uh, and the electoral law and the agreement on elections was very much weighed in favor of Israel. And therefore, and we took decisions, uh, I agree with Diana, but in, in 19, no, in, in 2018, the PNC and the PCC took a decision that the interim phase is over, the interim phase which was supposed to end in 1999 and that governed our lives and so on. We said it no longer prevails. We have to redefine our lives and our relationship to Israel 
And since Israel has reneged on all its agreements and commitments and so on, it is time that we change course. It is time that we think outside the box. We should not be held responsible for agreements that Israel has shattered, has totally uh, destroyed. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> the, the um, elections are being held on the basis of those agreements, as though we are still in the interim phase. This is what bothers me. I agree, we need elections. We've been calling for elections. I've been asking. I, I mean, when I resigned, I said we should, have, we should have had elections years ago. We cannot continue like this. And of course, the leadership did not benefit, Diana. Maybe some benefited financially or something. But in terms of their legitimacy and support, they lost the support of the people. And we've been saying, you know, you cannot hold the people, uh, a leadership responsible for things that are not under their control. And at the same time, they were unable to deliver to the Palestinian people what they promised. So they lost not just an eroding legitimacy, but they lost support and the gap between the people and the leadership was increasing. And that was one reason why they felt they had to have elections among other things. Now, we are in an ironic situation. Yes where people want to have elections. The younger generation, we have what, uh, about 75% who are below 35. We have 66.2% below 29. So they can't even be candidates for elections. And yet 94% of the public uh, registered in order to elect. So it shows you how hungry <laughs> people are uh, to be able to take matters into their own hands, to hold their leaders accountable, to elect new leaders, to, to change the situation. And yet they know the limits. They know <laughs> that this is an agreement they don't like. Even Hamas and, and the Popular Front who, who refused uh, to accept the, the uh, Oslo Accords are running in these elections the way they ran last elections. So on the one hand, this is the, the utmost irony. On the one hand, they, they don't approve of the agreements and yet they are willing to run under agreements that were supposed to expire in 1999 and, and agreements that are blatantly unfair and, and quite destructive in many ways. So here we are. This uh, situation is, is one way in which the young feel that it is time for them to be able to make a difference. They have become quite skeptical, yes, they haven't been part of, a, uh, of the process of change or they haven't taken their uh, uh, rightful place in decision-making at all levels. And yet they are rushing into this, <laughs> on the one hand, quite skeptical and uh, not quite uh, trusting the process itself. And on the other, they see in this uh, an opportunity to engage, to intervene and to change, and to be instruments of change. So you have the occupation, you have the, the uh, agreements that are unfair. You also have the internal rift, which has weakened everybody. Uh, and all these together have, have you know, created a very abnormal situation. It's like, you know, smoke and mirrors. It's like saying, okay, you Palestinians should have free and fair elections. You should deliver as though you have all the power, as if you have everything under control. We have nothing under control. Not our land, not our airspace, not our territorial waters, not our resources, uh, and even not our lives. <laughs> uh, 
and people get arrested regularly. In the last elections, when Hamas won, uh, won uh, the majority seats, immediately they arrested 30-some people. So Hamas lost its majority, and therefore they refused to allow the uh, PLC, the Legislative Council, to meet because they, they said, should we meet, then we might take decisions that they don't like, that they don't approve of. And so we had to persuade, we kept telling them, no, let's meet and we promise you we'll have an honor code. We won't uh, uh, you know, uh, adopt resolutions that uh, would be detrimental to your interests, but they wouldn't. So from the beginning, it's not just the arrest of people, not just Hamas, they also had BFLP and Fatah and others in jail and independence. It is the fact that the very workings, the meeting of the mm -hmm. plenary of the, the Legislative Council uh, was impossible with Israeli interference. And so while we are happy and while we have 36 lists, uh, we can talk about the specifics if you want later and how uh, Fatah is, is uh, suffering from a certain type of nuclear fission. But uh, we... <laughs> We know, we know, we are caught. We know that whoever wins, no matter what, maybe the one thing that they can control would be the system of governance, would be the acceptance of accountability, oversight, and so on, would be to stop this series of decrees that have been unleashed, you know, presidential decrees that have replaced the uh, legislative council for years now. And uh, this is one thing they can do, it's internal. Huh? Maybe they can respect people's rights and freedoms, particularly freedom of uh, expression and so on. But they are powerless in terms of preventing Israeli oppression and control. They cannot change the Israeli system. And they cannot bring about the liberation of Palestine on their own, no matter how you know, creative and inventive and young and, and spirited they are. And I really support them. There are many young people who are running and there are many people who are uh, genuine reformers who are running. But still, the odds are tremendous. The conditions are extremely difficult, if not impossible. And the Palestinians are always held to much more stringent standards than anybody else, even though we are in a situation where we have the most handicaps than anybody else. So I will, I will stop you and we can go into details if you want. Great, um, I wanted to go back to you. Um, just to ask a very blunt question, what do you think are the chances that these elections will actually be held? Uh, or or uh, do, do, you know, do, do you think that's likely? Do you think they're still, uh, is it still plausible that they, will be, they might be called off for some reason? And if so, what would be the circumstances do you think? Yeah, I think it's possible that they might be postponed or abandoned. I don't know. But <clears throat> the, uh, the interference in Palestinian realities is, is very evident here because there are lots of countries <laughs> that are giving different uh, pieces of advice to the Palestinian leadership. Uh, some people are saying, you know, you have to be very careful if Hamas wins, that means, you, you know, the, the whole Palestinian body politic cannot function and the international community cannot deal with them and blah, blah, blah. And others are saying, you know, you have to put your own house in order, you have to reconcile Fatah internally rather than start reconciling with uh, Hamas and so on. And uh, it's, it's a series of uh, positions and of course, like every other political system, the Palestinian leadership doesn't want to have elections should 
it have a suspicion that they might fail, that they might not get the majority. They're looking at this very carefully. So all in all, not just Fatah, but Hamas and everybody else. And the left has almost totally disappeared. Uh, the, gradually, I felt they committed political suicide, so to speak. So you ended up with this polarized situation, but now you have two major parties and uh, several other, uh, 34 other <laughs> uh, electoral lists running. So the chances of, I mean, it, it's not certain, I cannot give you percentages, but Israel can prevent elections instantly. Should they forbid any elections in Jerusalem? Already they're beginning. They're beginning by arresting people in Jerusalem, as I told you, they just arrested people. Uh, disrupted the meeting and so on. Uh, and they should go on arresting and, and uh, preventing people from moving and so on. So that's that's one way. Huh? Uh, and uh, the, the internal interests of the different factions and movements and parties would be another factor. But right now, it's all systems go. Right now, the Central Elec uh, Elections uh, Commission is working. Uh, we just have the, the uh, 36 lists and names and so on that have been approved. Uh, people are uh, you know, putting their own house in order, trying to prepare for elections. And there is a real thirst to feel that they can have something normal, that they can do something for themselves. Uh, it, it is a sense of empowerment. It is a sense of uh, um, the right to be like everybody else, you know. <laughs> but they know that they are being held back by so many factors, whether domestic, internal, or international, external, and primarily the Israeli occupation and control. Thank you. Um, I want to go to, to Diana and then back to Orly. Um, Diana, you know, one of the things about elections which makes them so valuable is, is you learn something about through the debate that emerges in elections and how people vote about about what's on people's minds and, and you know how how public opinion how sentiment has moved and I'm just wondering uh, if, if, if what you're sensing already as these elections start in terms of what they may be telling us about um, about the issues that are most important to Palestinians um, about the kind of about the political evolution that's taking place among Palestinians what what, is, what strikes you as interesting about the debates that are emerging now as these elections get underway. Are you um, um, referring to Palestinians uh, in Israel or Palestinians? I mean, Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, and Eastern okay. <laughs> um, the Yeah, the, the Palestinians on the other side of the Green Line, we'll talk about those as well, but just- Okay, all right, just wanted to make sure. Look, I, I think that, um, I think that in, in many ways, it's it's very much, a, as, as Dr. Ashawi already mentioned, it's, a, it's really about this idea of, of thirst for change. And, the fact that we've seen um, 36 lists come together, I think four of them from Fatah, a few of them from the left and so on. Um, I think it's really, a, 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 I think it's people just trying to come together and trying to rebuild their house and wanting to be able to have some change. The names of the lists are also very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> the return, uh, the future, um, and uh, what was the, there's a few of them that I, I remember looking at and thinking like- There's freedom, Nasser and Marwari. That's right. It's um, you know, very aspirational for for uh, for many of these lists. 
because it's a sense of trying to carve out and, and think of a different future. Is that going to be what actually ends up being on the slate? I'm not so sure. And the reason I'm not so sure about this is because so far what I haven't seen, and it's again, it's way too early, Peter, to, to be able to, um, to diagnose this, but what I haven't seen so far is the referendum on Oslo as Oslo. I see that it's a referendum on, on the individuals and the setup and the structure, but not of Oslo as Oslo, which is to say that I haven't yet seen from the lists that there is a that this is a referendum on whether there should be a negotiations process, whether it's you know two state, one state, like all of those bigger issues I have not yet seen. That's not to say that it's not there yet, it might be, but, um, but instead it's more about an idea of change, of being able to, to bring people in, to be able to have a say. You know, it's the, the essence of self-determination is being able to have a say in who it is who's governing your life. And, uh, and so that seems to be one of the, of the main themes. And um, another thing that is interesting is this tension or this pull that exists between the past and the future, um, which is to say that we've got the traditional Fatah list. And then of course, there's the, the, the three other, um, or maybe even four other uh, Fatah lists that have since been, that are since the offshoots with the traditional Fatah list representing traditional Fatah. And then some of the other lists um, talking about the need for, for change within Fatah itself, to need to have a different vision, et cetera. So these are the things that so far that, I'm, that we're seeing from the list. Again, it's too early. Just yesterday was the last day to submit any, um, any disputes regarding the, the lists uh, that have come out. And so today is the first day that the, today or yesterday was the first day that the lists are, are finally um, available and, and set. Now, all to say, um, Peter, is that this, we, you know, people would love this to be, I, others uh, would love this to be a referendum about where our future is and being as inclusive as possible, being able to bring in as many uh, Palestinians as possible, uh, being able to really shape and, and have a referendum on Oslo and so on. But I don't think that that's what it's going to shape up to be. I think it's going to end up being, whether it's the, whether it's the election of the traditional um, lists versus some of the, the newer lists. And even with all of that said, even with all those caveats, I, I do think that it's important to go down this path because I do think that there's a bigger issue out there, which is the, the greater elections that lead to, that are much more inclusive, that aren't just relating to who's governing the Palestinian authority, but who's, who's governing the Palestinian national movement. Um, speaking yeah. of the Palestinian national movement, Orly, talking on the other side of the, of the green line, and you were a member of, of, of Balad, um, you talked in your first answer about the, the breakup of the, uh, about the breakup of the joint list. Um, uh, in this in this election, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, now that the the joint list has, has broken apart, and and you have a uh, an Islamist Ram party that is open to supporting a, a government, even perhaps a government of the right. What do you feel like is the future of um, of the joint list um, and, the, and the different parties inside the joint list, and also? There have been some who've suggested that that this taboo about Israeli governments relying on uh, Arab Palestinian parties for their uh, Knesset majority has now been 
broken, perhaps, ironically, by uh, an Islamist and Benjamin Netanyahu. Do you think that's true? Does this represent in any any sense progress, or how do you how do you make sense of it? Uh, I'm starting the second part of your uh, question. Uh, look, uh, there is. Uh, I will refer in a moment to the. Uh, Question whether or not uh, it represents something significant or, or really meaningful. But without a doubt, last week, when the entire uh, Israeli Hebrew speaking media uh, dedicated its uh, primetime news broadcast to the uh, speech of the head of the Islamic party, that is a, a defined moment in the Israeli politics. I mean, we've, we've never had uh, such a moment. And, um, it, but, but the question is really, what do you read uh, into it? Um, I think that the breaking of, uh, and, and now I am speaking as a ballad member, which was uh, the initi initiator of the idea of the joint list and has uh, campaigned for the need of a united Palestinian political power within 48, within Israel, uh, long before the joint list uh, was actually created. Um, it, without a, a doubt, the creation of the joint list uh, signified uh, an incredibly important uh, moment because it was the, the meaning or the significance of the joint list was way more than the, than the 15 seats uh, that they've been uh, able to uh, uh, achieve uh, the first time around. For the first time, you had the, you know, the three components of uh, Palestinian politics inside Israel, if you can define them generally as uh, the communists, the, the nationalists, and the Islamists, um, creating a joint, joint uh, front that represented the entirety of uh, the, 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 the political spectrum of uh, Palestinians uh, in, in Israel. It, that never erased the differences, not only between, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, more socialists uh, and Islamists, and, but between the political approach, uh, between the two different political approaches, one, aspiring to change from within, uh, and the other uh, is uh, uh, aspiring to hold uh, the, the, the political, national, Palestinian identity uh, and, and, and to, to influence as, as such. Um, I, I don't think now, um, I think that, uh, you know, if you run for for uh, the Knesset, then of course you want to influence. It's not that Balad doesn't want to influence or Hadash, uh, the the Communist Party doesn't want to influence. But it, but uh, the split uh, be, uh, that was led by uh, Mansour Abbas, by the head of the Islamic uh, uh, Party. Uh, presented a different sort of dilemma. What kind of, of concessions are you ready to make in, in, in order, in exchange for what achievements? So now 
it's we've come to a point that Netanyahu did legitimize the the Islamic movement, but what is the nature of that uh, un, unwritten deal? Is that you as a Palestinian uh, will legitimize the concept of Jewish supremacy, uh, accept it as a given, will give up your, uh, uh, your aspiration to even challenge it in exchange for your most fundamental rights, civic rights, civil rights. I mean, in order for, in exchange for your houses not to be demolished and uh, uh, your children not to be murdered uh, by, cri by criminals in your streets, etc. So, um, and, and I don't think, I, I mean, it was a defying moment, that speech of uh, Mansko Basset, but honestly, I think that once Netanyahu is out of the picture, and it will happen sooner or later, then uh, the, um, oh, I'm sorry. Okay, now you're back. Yeah, I am here. I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on with my. Uh, um, we can still hear you. So if you need to. Okay. So I think that once Netanyahu will be out of the picture and the Israeli politics will be able uh, to shape up according uh, uh, to uh, substantial questions of ideology, of uh, political stance, then of course the majority of the Israelis are deep in the right wing and the Palestinian po uh, political parties will be excluded just as quickly as they were legitimized. They will become uh, the... the yeah. I, they will be delegitimized de de as quickly as they were legitimized. So I don't see this as a, a substantial uh, uh, change in, in, in that sense. And I think that uh, the price uh, that uh, the Palestinian United Political Front paid for that uh, is was uh, devastating. We can see it in the drop, in the dramatic drop of uh, the voting among uh, the Palestinian citizens uh, in Israel who just lost uh, faith and hope in the so-called democratic uh, process. Uh, and, uh, and, but, but I think that the price is not just uh, in the number of uh, uh, seats. It's... Uh, it's um, in the identity of the the uh, national the, the political national uh, Palestinian voice in Israel and uh, the the depth of it is still remain to be seen. Um, Diana, I wanted to ask ask you about another development in these Israeli elections, which is the the inclusion of the Kahanists, uh, the followers of, of Mayor Kahana, who in the 1980s, whose party Kach was actually outlawed in Israel for being explicitly racist, opposing marriage or, for instance, between um, uh, between Jews and, 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 and non-Jews. Um, now having uh, people from that ideological stream who have been now just sworn into the Knesset and, and welcomed by Netanyahu as potential coalition partners. I wonder if you can talk about what you think the significance of that is. I think it's important um, to, to keep in mind that the Kahanists although they were banned in 1988, 
they have still been part of the Israeli political landscape ever since. You know, there have been a lot of individuals who were who were students of Kahana himself, uh, whether it was Avigdor Lieberman, yeah, who, uh, who was from the Israel Batenu party, or Yehuda Glick, or, uh, or Gidon Saar. I mean, many of them have been offshoots of, of, of Kahane and ha have followed in his, uh, sorry, not Saab, uh, Feiglin, who followed in his footsteps, who very much believed in what, in what he has done. Now, um, that being said, they, they not only have worked and, and have been on the sidelines, but they've actually been inside of Likud itself and also within their own parties itself. And so this is why we see everything from uh, the rise of and the normalization of the quote, you know, Temple Mount faithful. This is why we see the normalization of, of uh, many of the, the types of legislation that Kahane was putting forward. It's all become very normal. That said, I don't want to underestimate or discount their new presence in the Knesset. It's important for us not to do that. Yes, they've been part of the landscape for, for quite some time, but the fact that we have these individuals who are now not only sworn in, but have this diplomatic immunity, who have been pushing for quite some time to have their agenda be pushed forward. And that is an agenda that seeks the expulsion of Palestinians. It's an agenda that doesn't want to have any oversight, whether it's the Supreme Court for all of its flaws, and it is very deeply flawed, um, that doesn't want to have Supreme Court oversight. It's an agenda that seeks to uh, get rid of Palestinians. It's very important for us to, to keep in mind that this is what it means now to have these Kahanists um, in power. And it's not again that they're, it's, just not, it's also not that they're just members of Knesset who now have diplomatic immunity, but it's that, they're, that, they're, um, that their ideology becomes legitimized, that it becomes normalized. For example, um, Itamar ben the head of, of the, the Jewish power party, he himself has, has he dressed up as, um, as Baruch Goldstein for, for Purim many, many years ago. He describes his hero as being Baruch Goldstein as a, mass, a man who massacred 29 Palestinians uh, in February of 1994. And to have that be normalized, to have him potentially have um, a cabinet seat, to have it him, not only him be normalized, but the fact that Netanyahu has signed an, an, a, an, a, a vote sharing agreement with him, an alliance with him, and that Netanyahu himself is normalizing these people. Um, this is a very dangerous trend and it's not one that we should be dismissing. Yes, they have been in place for quite some time, but I think we really should have our guard up in terms of what it means to have them be in place and the harm that they have created and the harm that they can potentially create in the future. I don't think that we should um, dismiss it or under, undermine it in any way, shape or form. Yeah, yeah. If I may add to this point, Please. I agree with Diana, Diana, but I think that the writing has been on the wall for a long time. And the whole uh, political terrain in Israel has been shifting to the right systematically. Uh, it has been shifting to the right and institutionally. It has been shift shifting to the right in terms of the uh, legislation and laws until we got to see the uh, nation state law that, that says only Jews have the right to self-determination, which codified uh, racism and so on. And so in a sense, what has happened is that it has come out into the open now. And that the movement of uh, Kach and Kahana has become uh, 
acceptable in civilized discourse. And the fact that the Israeli body politic, in a sense, has absorbed and internalized this type of language. And you see it in action on the ground. That's, that's what's happening. When you see, you talked about the, the settlers and the, the extreme right-wing, uh, I don't say activists, but militias, and whether you see them in the uh, army, where the army is trigger happy and is totally immune to any kind of uh, uh, legal uh, accountability. And the same thing with the settlers who have been unleashed, killing Palestinians daily. The, the, the deaths, the killing, the uh, total assaults and so on, with the help of the army. The, the whole uh, situation in Israel, and particularly the situation in the occupied territories, has, uh, in a sense, internalized this type of mentality and is enacting it. And it's extremely serious, because what they're calling for is the expulsion of Palestinians and, of course, the infliction of, any, of all types of harm uh, on the Palestinians. What the government and the army don't do, the settlers do, and they have a free hand. This is what scares all Palestinians. And that's why we, we talk about international law, talk about the post Geneva Convention, the uh, responsibility to protect uh, people uh, under occupation and the responsibility to hold the occupiers accountable, which has not happened yet. Yeah. Orly, I want to on this question, the move of Israel to the right, and, and particularly, um, you know, you are, uh, um, among many other things, also a Mizrahi Israeli activist. Um, I have to say one of the, for me, the most confusing things growing up for me politically was that the most right-wing member of our extended family was my grandmother of blessed memory who was born in Alexandria and grew up in Egypt and spoke Arabic. And she was the most anti-Arab person in our family. Um, and I, I was genuinely confused as a child in some ways because I knew that many of my Ashkenazi relatives saw her as Arab herself, which she was. And, and yet this was her, her, it seemed to me, it was confusing, frankly. Um, um, uh, uh, and and, and I, um, it seems to me part of the story of Israel's move to the right is, is, is the story of Mizrahi politics, starting, you know, with, starting with the embrace of Menachem Begin and continuing on it. And I, 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 this is a big topic, but I would just love to hear you talk through why it is that this community that might one might have hoped might have been a bridge between European Jews and Palestinians has so often instead shown need to needed it to prove itself more anti-Palestinian than the Ashkenazim. I think you just answered your question. Your grandmother was referred to as Arab. In Israel, you don't want to be referred to as Arab. That that puts you in a very underprivileged position. And that was, I mean, if you know, I always uh, uh, use the fantastic uh, uh, example of uh, 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 Ehud Barak, who compared Israel to a villa in the jungle. And I would add a colonial white villa in the jungle. So if, uh, you know, what it says about the Palestinians, the Arab world, which is in that allegory, the jungle, we understand. What does it mean about the Middle Easterns, the, the, the native inhabitants of the jungle, who you do need to allow inside the walls of that villa? Then if, if the villa in which you find yourself now constantly looks at the surrounding, which is your own a natural surrounding, 
but now the inhabitants of the villa look at it as a jungle and as a very dangerous uh, place. You don't want to be associated with that. You want to distance yourself from, from that as much as possible. This is, this is one thing. The other thing is that uh, as opposed to the Ashkenazi uh, uh, Jews, uh, we needed to burn all the bridges behind us. I mean, the Zionism actually burned down those bridges. So we were stuck. We are now stuck in that villa as part of a colonial uh, uh, project uh, that, you know, uh, um, imposed the colonial position on us. We who used to be natives in that environment, you know, we used to be natives in the Middle East. And now uh, uh, we are trapped in this uh, colonial uh, uh, position. Another reason is because uh, the uh, Zionist establishment engineered the encounter between the Mizrahim and the Palestinians from the very get-go as a confrontational one. It did so by putting the Mizrahim uh, in the, uh, uh, who uh, came uh, to Israel um, in the uh, towns and villages uh, uh, from which the Palestinians were uprooted, uh, so to prevent them uh, the, from uh, coming back. So from the very get-go, uh, it's, it's an confrontational encounter and a sum zero game. I mean, if, you know, if the Palestinian refugee comes back, then I lose my house. Uh, and, and the fourth point is that uh, while the Mapai establishment um, uh, in the 50s uh, was the inc the Labour Party, yes, the origins of the Labour Party was extremely, not only con condescending towards the Mizrahim, but actually hostile, um, um, looking down at them uh, uh, and, and excluding them from enjoying, quote unquote, the fruits of uh, the 48 loot, then what the right wing establishment did very, uh, in a very smart way, was to allow uh, the Mizrahim uh, to be incorporated into uh, the occupation project and actually enjoy the fruits of it. Yeah, the, the, there was a there is an entire uh, new uh, Mizrahi middle class that can now afford nice villas with red uh, uh, roofs in the settlements because the land is free and uh, you have great mortgages and the, the, the state does everything within its power to encourage you to come to these places. Uh, an entire uh, Mizrahi class could never have allowed itself those, that status standards of uh, living inside 48. Uh, so, so the the right wing incorporated the, also not not only the political but also the economic interests of the Mizrahim into the project of uh, of uh, the occupation. Uh, so you know when you bring a community which was uprooted, uh, by the way, not all of them uh, uh, by choice. We you know we now. Today, we know that, for example, the Jewish agency uh, blew bombs in synagogues in uh, Baghdad, in Iraq, 
because the Jews just didn't want to live and they wanted to frighten them into living and, um, and immigrating to Israel. So they come, they, have, they, they don't have bridges back to their original ha- uh, homes. They are looked at constant, constantly uh, as uh, suspicious uh, of being Arab, which they are. Uh, so they need to get rid of their identity, their heritage, their language. Less than 2% of the Mizrahim today speak actually uh, Arabic. And those who do uh, usually do so uh, within the frame of the army using their Arabic language and their Arabic appearance uh, uh, for uh, uh, military uh, purposes. And then when you break the backbone of a community and leave it with no heritage, with no self-identity, with no uh, 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 language, culture, history, etc. Then it becomes, you know, it becomes uh, very easy to manipulate. But at the same time, I must say it's not—it's not an, a coincidence. It's not by coincidence that you do find a lot of Mizrahim also in the radical non-Zionist left, because if the uh, notion of Jewish and democratic state is collapsing into itself. And we see it with the entrance of Kahana to, to, to the Knesset. This ultimately Zionism leads to, 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 to Kahana. If you know, if you want to keep Israel both Jewish and democratic, the meaning is that you need to artificially and be engineering the demography to, to maintain a solid Jewish uh, uh, majority. So those of us who see the inevitable collapse of this uh, uh, inherent contradiction, contradiction in terms, uh, we think that, you know, as Mizrahim, we have a, a huge shared interest with our Palestinian uh, um, neighbors to offer an alternative to the day after Zionism, which actually sees Israel with the, within the context of the Middle East. Uh, uh, and this is the only way that will allow us to go back being natives of the Middle East, except of, instead of uh, colonials in that white imaginary villa. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot there we could do a whole show just on this and 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 it is worth I would you know at one point I would love to do that because it is worth noting that that you know there are most uh, Mizrahi voters are are you know as voting as people voting on the right are t- are telling a different story um, than than this one in order to I think explain their their political uh, position um, Diana I I want to uh, just go back to you we, a number we've got a bunch of questions in the um, uh, in the in the chat, and a number of them uh, refer to one individual, and I bet you can guess who that individual is. <laughs> Marwan, I mean, of course. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So um, uh, the I wonder if you can talk about the uh, the potential significance of his saying that 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 he wants to to run. Okay, it's, uh, I'm going to go Diana, and then I'll go back to you. Uh, okay, no, I didn't know whom you were asking. Yes, yes, you can jump okay, in after but... as well on this if you want. Go ahead. Actually, I was going to, I was suggesting that Hanan actually answer it. Oh, okay, Hanan, please. Go ahead, Diana. I mean, I, I will follow up. Go ahead. <laughs> um, 
Look, I, I think it's, it's uh, thank you. I, I, I think it's, it's significant. I, and it's significant and then it's not. Look, I think for, for many people, um, Marwan represents the, exactly the lives that we are leave, le leading, which is um, imprisoned. Um, it's imprisoned and seeking to be free and so on. And, and so in that regard, um, he, he is somebody who has been very active in Fatah, community, community involved in the Tanzim and community uh, organizing and, and so on. And so on that part, it's, it's very significant, especially since I think for, for such a long period of time, um, he, he hasn't really been playing front and center when it comes to Palestinian politics and instead I don't know if it's because he wanted to or because it was the other way around that they didn't want him to, it was left for other people. And so I think that his re-entry is very important. That being said, as Dr. Ashrawi already mentioned, we have a significant percentage of the population that is under a certain age, that is under the age of 29. And it's not entirely clear to me how much they are aware of what it was that, um, that uh, Marwan has done in the past, what role he played in the past, um, how, how it was that he was organizing and so forth, other than simply remaining a name. Remember, it's, it's actually, wow, it's today, uh, or yesterday, from 2002, yesterday, that he's been held in, in an Israeli prison. Um, so we're talking 19 years that he's been in prison. So I while I think it's, it's significant because it's showing that there is a, a challenge, there's a contender to the existing Fatah structures, um, and I think that that will get a lot of support. I also think that we have to bear in mind that uh, there's a large percentage of the, of, the, of the people who will be able to vote who may not have the full picture of, of who um, Marwan is. Uh Dr. Shra, would you want to jump in on this? Yeah, yeah, certainly. I think Marwan, in many ways, has been spared uh, being tainted by the current politics in Palestine, as, as Diana said, and, and the fact that he has been in prison for such a long time, and he was given so many life sentences, and everybody knows he hasn't killed anybody. He was an activist and an organizer and a student organizer and so on, and he was uh, held responsible for the Kataib Shuhada al-Aqsa and what they did. So they uh, tried him and imprisoned him uh, on their behalf, knowing full well that he was one leader that had credibility and standing, particularly among activists, among the grassroots. He's, he's known, he's an organizer. The younger generation still knows him, by the way. He's not that much older, but he still, they know him symbolically. Uh, they know him as a symbol of resistance, as a freedom fighter, as somebody, even the symbol of his, you know, hands and cuffs and so on, standing up to the occupier, to the army. So he has that type of value. He can mobilize and he does mobilize the younger generation and a large portion of Fateh itself. Uh, is, is quite loyal to, to Marwan. He was active in the student movement. He was the student council leader, Shabibe and everything. Now, you have that aspect, you have the younger people who, who desperately want to enter uh, the political arena and they want to be heard and they want to uh, make a, a change. And they see their support for Marwan as one way of doing that, while others say, we don't want to be part of any 
of the old faces, <laughs> any of the old timers, any who were part of the uh, previous political system uh, that we want to change. And yet they were unable to run for elections for many reasons, including the electoral law that was changed in order to be uh, quite biased against them uh, and, and to present all sorts of conditions that they couldn't meet. And there are others who think that perhaps the marriage, let's say the fusion between uh, Nasser Qudwe, Abu Ammar's nephew, and at the same time an experienced politician who's not implicated in corruption with uh, Marwan Barouti, who is seen as a symbol of struggle and resistance and freedom. Uh, this kind of um, uh, political merger would be very instrumental huh, in being a force for change and might be, uh, at least quantitatively, might make a difference and therefore shatter this polarization in, in Palestine between mainstream Fatah and Hamas. Uh, and the fact that Fatah has many lists, as uh, Diana said, is, uh, is in a way a sign of disaffection and uh, disgruntlement within Fatah and the need for rejuvenation and change. So Marwan still has value. Marwan still has political and active value. And the Israelis know this. This is what they kept saying they will never release him. And for several times there were attempts at having him released to prisoner exchange or others and they wouldn't and uh, they know that he's a political card that they want to play in many ways so um, uh, i i wouldn't discount uh, marwan and his impact because i see this period not as a period of transformation and change the way it should be i see it as a transition to real transformation and change. Because not only are many of the young who really hold the key to our future, there are some amazing young people in Palestine, men and women who really can shape, reshape our future. But there are also amazing Palestinians all over the world who are excluded from this process. So what we need mm -hmm. is not just reunification here, we need to be able to have Palestinian representation at all levels within Palestine, in exile, people who should take part in shaping their future because it wasn't their choice to leave Palestine. They were expelled, they were uprooted, and so they should be part of the decision-making. So right now, these elections are in many ways flawed, but I see them as a transition to a new phase in which we make room for the young. There is a list, of <laughs> a virtual list, of uh, people running virtually for elections in order to say we are here, we couldn't do this because of the conditions, the, the Salem Barahme, the uh, Jad, the, the new generation. But we are placing our mark. We are telling you we are here and we will run next time. We will be able to be a force for change. So to them, this plus the Palestinians in exile who should be able to take part in the elections and to run if they want to. Um, and of course, I know Israel will not allow them to, to run because they, they, they won't be allowed to come back, to come home, unless they have an ID. But still, this is part of launching a new era and preparing the ground for serious change. Now, the decisions on the Oslo process, Diana, if I may add to this, were taken, actually, they were taken uh, I was in, in uh, two meetings in, in 2015, 2018, in which they said that 
the interim phase is over, that the PNC has taken a decision not to be bound by these agreements, that Israel has destroyed all these agreements, that we need to reshape our relationship to the occupation and to the rest of the world, actually. And we have to redefine the nature of our struggle. Unfortunately, these decisions were not respected or translated into policy positions and actions. That's why there are younger people who are not in any way committed to the past agreements, what is called the Oslo process or the DOP, but who are trying to see new and, and hopeful and innovative ways in which they can shape the future. And I think they should be given the chance. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, just, I wanted to make sure, to, just to, so that I'm clear, I wasn't discounting um, Marwan's participation in any way. I, my my uh, question was whether people are really aware of the full contribution that he made to resistance. Yeah. Um, in those years, given that he's been in prison for such a long time. Absolutely. So I didn't want anybody to, uh, I, I may not have said it as, as well as I should have, but I just wanted to make sure. No, that okay. Yeah, no, he does have symbolic value, even to those who don't know him. He yeah. represents the prisoner who's the hero to Palestinians, exactly. not the terrorist as Israel says. Diana, we've talked a bit about, about Fatah. Um, we haven't talked very much about Hamas and um, uh, about what it's, um, uh, what it's, you know, what its message in, in this election is, why it decided, you know, why, it, if it's ambivalent about holding these elections at all, why it, uh, you know, um, what you think it's, um, uh, what role it's playing as we move into elections. But I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you see at Hamas' strategy, how, uh, and um, why you think that they are um, participating in this, if, if you think they are doing so full-throatedly. Well, um, so, one thing that sets them apart from the other uh, political parties is that they have one list. So unlike the other, uh, as we mentioned, Fatah has four lists, some of the left has a number of different lists and so on. Hamas has come together with one definitive list. I think, um, I may not be right on this. I think that, that this is again, one of those situations where um, they're feeling the heat of people. People want to see change. They want to see something different. And movements can't grow, in my opinion, without showing that you've done something tangible on the ground or without having a process of renewal. And so this is why I think that they have entered into it. I also think that it's gotten to the point where they can't govern. And, uh, and they've made, um, so far, they've made it clear that they don't want to be putting forward a candidate when it comes to president. So again, you know, straddling that, that line of, we wanna be in politics, but not necessarily in politics. So we wanna be in the, in the PLC and then eventually to the PLO, but we don't wanna bear the burden and have the blame of being the president of the Palestinian Authority because it really is a thankless job. Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think that that's kind of the, the, the straddle that they're, they're trying to, that's the, what they're trying to straddle. I also think that they don't wanna to appear to be the ones who are the, the spoilers and, uh, and want to continue to show that they're the ones who are willing to, to go ahead and go along. Um, again, time will tell what, what things will, will show. I, I remember in 2006, when, when they ran their campaign in, uh, in Gaza, which is where they got a lot of their seats, in fact, the majority of their seats, um, it was a very well-run campaign. And, but their campaign was a campaign that, that wasn't a campaign of ideas, it was a campaign of critique. And, and in 2006, it was very easy to, to bring on a campaign, to hold a campaign of critique 
because everything didn't look very good. It really was quite bleak. Um, and so it was very easy to, to, to get that vote, to get, the, to get that support. I think now it's going to be different. And, and this is going to be a time where, where people are gonna be looking for change but I think I'm hoping that it's going to be a question of what is the quality of change? What are, what are we actually talking about? What are the what is the strategy that we're we're looking for? And not just we need um, change because we don't like the way that it's been going for the past 15 years. Yeah, especially now that may I say this, especially now that Hamas has had a turn at governing. Exactly. And yeah. hasn't done a very good job of it. So exactly. it's no longer the unknown quality that ran on the basis of reform and change, the name of its block. Yes. There are people who governed. And they governed, they didn't succeed, they didn't do a good job of it. So in a sense, they are being held accountable the way Fateh and the other factions uh, are being held accountable. The only difference, as Jana said, is that they are disciplined. They have an ideology. And they do bring religion into the... Uh, uh, to play, and uh, therefore they are able to not just to mobilize, but to hold on to a hard core of membership, which other parties that are more fluid cannot. Ah. You're muted. I want to talk a little bit about the, the impact of, um, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, now we can. About the, the impact of um, kind of regional dynamics, both on Israeli and uh, and Palestinian politics in, in the in the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem, and, and start with you, Orly. Interesting, you were talking about this sense that Israel was a quote unquote villa in the jungle, this kind of set apart from from the from the Middle East. Of course, that many Israelis now are uh, excited by the normalization with the uh, United uh, UAE and Bahrain, and in some different degrees with, with Morocco and, and, and Sudan and um, feel that they've kind of broken through, you know? Um, and I'm interested in what you think the, the political impact inside Israel has been of those normalization agreements uh, and what you think the political legacy might be for Israeli politics. Well, uh, Netanyahu certainly tried uh, to uh, uh, manipulate uh, those agreements uh, into, uh, you know, and present them as a huge achievement. Uh, it didn't, it wasn't that big of a part of his uh, election campaign because I think that, you know, the, when those uh, uh, agreements were signed, um, the Israeli uh, media uh, was swamped by. Uh, uh, ironic and, and comic uh, remarks that how wonderful it is that we ended, you know, our long lasting uh, wars with uh, the Emirates or with, I mean, it can be, but it's, it's, I mean, we are stupid, we are not that stupid, uh, generally speaking of the, so it can be, but, but it, Israel is, there was no war between Israel and Emirates, that's why, that's why it's a joke, right, go ahead. Yeah, we you know we can bring back the troops home, and it, 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 it's um, <laughs> meaningless. Uh, but but it does say something about uh, you know how Israelis love uh, uh, peace agreements that do not come with a price. They don't don't mean anything either. They do mean. Um, you know, if you want to read into it uh, that Israel is more um, uh, uh, 
marginalized in the uh, in in the Middle Eastern environment because of that, then you can read into it. But I don't think that there is a single Israeli that actually believes that if peace processes should bring about uh, a sense of security, I don't think that there is a single Israeli, even in the right wing, that actually feels more secure because we signed a peace agreement with the Emirates. So, you know, in the back of our collective mind, we do know, and right wing included, that this does not, this is not where the core of the problem lies. It can, you know, uh, achieve us uh, some some points, but it doesn't um, uh, uh, really solve uh, uh, anything. It, I, I think that uh, the uh, where it really is significant is uh, undermining even more the uh, uh, the importance of dealing with the reality of the occupation, you know, to give the Israelis the sense that, oh, we can be just fine. We don't, we can bypass, keep bypassing the Palestinian issue. We can bypassing. And nobody really speaks about the occupation anymore in uh, uh, not, uh, it, it became a non-issue. Uh, we have, we've had four rounds of elections, very rarely, the, the question of occupation um, was even mentioned by others either side. The, the, difference, the, the difference is that the right wing has uh, a solid program, political program, regarding those uh, uh, the occupied territories and the bigger uh, area, and they don't need to speak about it. They just implement it constantly on the ground. But when the Israeli left neglects almost entirely to mention the, the uh, issue of uh, uh, occupation and you know, focus their campaigns on the uh, uh, issues of corruption, uh, uh, social issues, and, 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 and the occupation just disappears. And part of the joint list former part of the joint list is uh, also not speaking about the occupation, but of, uh, you know, roads and, uh, and uh, budgets and uh, uh, civil rights, etc. Then uh, it is much more, it's, it's much easier for not just Netanyahu, but the entire political system to just say, okay, we don't pay any price in the, on the international uh, scene right now for this long lasting uh, occupation. We can sign, you know, we can uh, have normalization uh, with Arab countries and be less excluded uh, in the Middle East. Um, and, and the Palestinian issue will just, you know, it, it will uh, evaporate eventually by, and at the same time, we are continuing the ethnic cleansing in the uh, West Bank. We are continuing to crush the Palestinian uh, political system, uh, both inside and outside uh, the, the Green Line. And then, you know, we hope that it will become a non-issue eventually. So in that sense, those peace agreements uh, did contribute to the um, belief 
that we do not need to confront the Palestinian issue. We do not need to confront that. It will, we can bypass it long enough for it to evaporate uh, on itself. Um, uh, Dr. Oshrawi, I wanted to ask you a, a, a similar question, which is what has been the impact of Palestinian politics in the occupied territories and, and, and more broadly in the diaspora of this Israeli move towards normalization? H how has it been received? And do you think it's having any impact uh, as, uh, on, the, on these upcoming Palestinian elections as the, in terms of the way Palestinians are responding? Uh, you're muted. Uh, from the beginning, the Palestinians reacted, first of all, with a tremendous sense of anger and a feeling of betrayal, really. Uh, it was just spontaneous. People erupted. I mean, they knew that underneath the surface there were sort of clandestine affairs going on between some Arab regimes and the, the Israeli extreme right-wing governments. Uh, <clears throat> but they didn't think that they would have the, excuse me, the chutzpah of coming out and, and making this affair into a, a public event, so to speak, that way. And, uh, of course, uh, Trump and Trumpism with his uh, extreme uh, Zionists, including the uh, evangelical uh, Zionists and so on, they all had a lot to do with it because they, they were trying to bring the whole Arab world to submit to Israel, to, to normalize the occupation to normalize with Israel at the expense of the Palestinians. They even stopped supporting the Palestinians economically as they stopped supporting the Palestinians politically. And this way they managed to fragment the uh, Arab position. They managed to destroy Arab League initiatives, including the Arab Peace Initiative, which was totally violated. And it rendered the Palestinians totally even more vulnerable without any Arab cover. And uh, to us, it was very obscene to see settlers going to the Emirates and signing agreements when the whole world is boycotting settlers and settlements. <laughs> uh, I mean, it, it was just, and then they're thinking of a, uh, a security uh, agreement. And yesterday, the new ambassador came to Israel. And the, it's not just normalization, there is a love fest. I mean, look, Egypt and Jordan did sign agreements, but these are very cold relations. Instantly, the Emirates came out with, with this love fest and this uh, very public romance, uh, and uh, it didn't go down well at all. I mean, I could go for hours as to the harm it did. It's not a benign move. And they named it uh, uh, the Abraham Accords in order to bring the ideological component to play. Huh? because they played into the religious component in Israel as well, and the extreme right. And not only that, but it encouraged the, the more despotic right-wing rulers. It created a rift between the people and their leadership. Not, not, it didn't create, it enhanced the rift because the Arab public is not happy with this. Arab public opinion, if you look at the latest polls, I think all in the 90s disapproved. And not a single Arab uh, nation as people approve of normalization. And mo most of them are, all of them are in the 90s. I think the lowest is 92 or something. So there was a lot of blackmail and a lot of bribery. 
in order to deliver the Arab world to Israel and reposition Israel in the region to turn it into a major economic, political, security, military, and intelligence power. This is what's happening now. And this is the Trump legacy. And it would, it's very naive and ignorant of any American administration to think that this is a normal legacy. This is a recipe for destabilization, a recipe for enhancement of autocratic system, a recipe not just for weakening the Palestinians, but maintaining the instability that is a result of the injustice done to the Palestinians. So for a variety of reasons, this issue of, of normalization has been really very seriously uh, rejected and uh, looked down and frowned upon by the Palestinians. In terms of the elections, there are people who say whoever gets support from the uh, uh, normalizing Arab countries will be uh, in many ways, I don't want to say delegitimized, but will be weakened. Even though uh, the Dahlan group in Gaza spent a lot of money and uh, Emirati money, certainly, on Gaza. So I think he might do well there, uh, but I don't know how what he will do in, in uh, the West Bank, how he will do in the West Bank. So uh, the, the intervention is not that overt. It, it's in terms of money like the Qataris have been helping Hamas financially and keeping them afloat for four years now. So the dynamic is not purely internal. It is also external and it depends on the player uh, who funds, who supports, who wants to see reconciliation, who wants to maintain the rift. And Israel certainly wants to maintain the rift. So, um, yeah, it has come to play, but it hasn't been a major decisive factor. But there is no disagreement among Palestinians and among all lists, and I've been talking to many of them, that they all disapprove of normalization. They see it not just as a betrayal, but as a very dangerous step that would destabilize the whole region. So I'm afraid we're, we're out of time. I wanted to, um, I think that the marker of, a, of, a, of one of these conversations I realized is not how many people are there at the beginning, but how many people are there at the end. And I would notice that um, <laughs> we've had very, very little attrition, which is a, is a testament to, um, to how, uh, um, how, how significant uh, and insightful the, the comments of our three guests have been. Uh, on behalf of FMP, I wanna thank Dr. Oshrawi, uh, Diana, and Orly for participating in today's webinar. Check back at the FMVP website, fmvp.org, for more information. Thanks all very much.